You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 19th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme, Israel's Prime Minister dismisses the idea that today's war could lead to tomorrow's peace later in the show. This council should never legitimise brazen violations of international law. If the Houthi attacks continue... There will be consequences. Those consequences have not deterred the Houthis yet. How is international shipping adjusting? We'll have a report from among the catwalks at Paris Men's Fashion Week, and our weekly review of what we learned includes this startling analysis of American history. We're not a racist country, Brian. We've never been a racist country. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. One means by which the United States has been trying to appear even-handed amid the current crisis in the Middle East has been by reiterating its support, in theory, for the idea of a Palestinian state. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu now appears to have closed this avenue of diplomacy. Netanyahu, never a fan of the idea of Palestinian statehood, has said that once current hostilities in Gaza end, Israel must have security control over all land west of the River Jordan, which obviously forestalls the prospect of a sovereign Palestine. The journalist Hannah McCarthy joins me now from Jerusalem. Um, Hannah, have Netanyahu's remarks occasioned any great surprise in Israel? This is pretty much what he's always thought, isn't it? I don't think his remarks will be that controversial within Israeli society. Um, You know, there is, you know, a significant part of Israeli society that, you know, you know, while not necessarily always seeing the day-to-day um, implementation of the occupation in the West Bank, you know, don't have a, a huge issue with the idea of settlements in Area C, which are not just, you know, small outposts, but in many cases, you know, cities, you know, where people regularly commute uh, between, for example, Ariel and, you know, the the main territory of Israel. Uh, within his government, there will also not be, you know, any shock that this is his position. Uh, men- Members of his government not only believe that, you know, Israel should have, you know, control of the West Bank area, but, you know, their views range from, you know, Area C should be annexed formally uh, to, you know, the whole of the West Bank should be annexed formally um, to, you know, Smotrich, who we've like seen distribute a a map which included parts of Jordanian territory within uh, Israeli territory. Uh, So, again, his view is most certainly for the audience, an audience within Israel and an audience within his own government. Uh, Nevertheless, the audience outside Israel has been quite keen, possibly clinging to some slender threads of optimism here to suggest that there could be some sort of path to Palestinian statehood once Hamas uh, is destroyed. Is anybody in Israel still talking about a two-state solution? I know a recent Gallup poll taken that is after October 7th suggests that it's now 25% of Israelis for, 65% against, which is an almost exact reversal of where the position was a decade ago. 
Yeah, I think overall the support for a two-state solution, which would involve an independent Palestinian state that would have, for example, its own army control over its border, um, support for that kind of idea uh, has definitely fallen, I think, after the Hamas massacre, which again, you know, has shaken Israeli society uh, and particularly the the remarks we've seen from the Israeli government afterwards about, you know, um, the prospect of, you know, uh, Hamas, you know, invading again and the need to completely vanquish them. I think the idea that they and again, there's been a lot of uh, rhetoric uh, from the Palestinian government that the Palestinian Authority is Hamas. Again, we heard that idea that Hamas is ISIS. So uh, there's been a lot of associations with, you know, any Palestinian power structures that basically present them as you know evil, as terror organizations, which makes the idea of you know them being your neighbor extremely difficult uh, to accept for many Israelis. And and this may also fall under the heading of frantic optimism, but Arab states are nevertheless reported to be working on a plan which will secure a ceasefire in Gaza. It will free the Israeli hostages still being held in Gaza, and it will recognise a Palestinian state in exchange for which Israel would receive that uh, long-sought-after normalisation of relations with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Do you think that's likely to go anywhere, though, given... Israel's current mood? I think we're certainly seeing proactive steps by the, this alliance of uh, more moderate Arab states who I think are concerned that the narrative is kind of, you know, focusing around Israel and America, who they don't have particular high hopes to secure, you know, stability or, you know, any kind of real uh, successful steps towards a Palestinian state. So they are certainly working around a, a framework that would lead to irreversible steps towards the creation of a Palestinian state. Uh, the issue this for Netanyahu is he has members of his coalition that will not accept that. And what we have here is that this kind of proposal by these Arab states is putting Netanyahu, who is, remains under uh, corruption charges uh, that he will uh, face you know, when this war ends, um, you know, it's a collision course with the stability of his coalition government and the right wing members that do not accept that there is a Palestinian state and will not accept this deal. I mean, is it possible, though, that a lot of this this planning and wishing being undertaken by parties outside uh, Israel, it, it, it's occurring on the assumption that Netanyahu, for the reasons you mentioned, among others, won't be there forever and that whoever or whatever replaces him and his coalition might be more amenable to compromise? I think there is a, a kind of widespread hell belief, you know, among you know, U.S. officials, European officials, that you know, after the war, Netanyahu has to go for there to be, you know, agreement to be able to to be reached uh, between you know Palestinian groups uh, and Israelis, and to have some stability. I think there's hopes that there would be, you know, Gantz or uh, Lapid would come in after. Uh, we've heard calls, you know, for early Israeli elections, maybe in in the summer. Um, but at the same, and again, both from within Israel's military and from the international community, there is real concern that Netanyahu, he has no strategy beyond maintaining this coalition at all costs, uh, which again is not, you know, a good military objective to have while waging an extremely costly war in Gaza. Uh, so again, you know, nothing is certain in Israeli politics. I think, you know, we are edging towards this idea of an election this year. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Netanyahu is the longest serving Israeli premier in history. He has 
you know, a remarkable ability to rehabilitate himself and hold on to power. Uh, so again, you know, while everyone is you know, hoping uh, he will be out of the framework uh, soon, I don't think there's any guarantees. Hannah McCarthy in Jerusalem, thanks for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. This is The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Late last night, US military aircraft conducted a fifth wave of strikes on targets in Yemen associated with the Houthi rebel movement, who have in recent weeks been making a pest of themselves, taking pot shots at passing shipping, as the Houthis did again immediately following these latest raids, causing two large splashes in the vicinity of an American-owned container ship. As long as the Houthis retain this capacity, many of the world's major shipping lines are understood understandably electing to send cargo the long way around, avoiding the Houthi threat at the entrance to the Red Sea, but adding considerably to the fuel bill. Well, I'm joined now by Richard Fatal, uh, founder and COO of the logistics provider Zen Cargo. Um, Richard, in the, in the grand scheme of global shipping, how big a disruption are we looking at at the moment? Look, I think this disruption is, is really quite significant. What we're seeing in the Red Sea is one of a number of regional ripple effects of the Israel-Hamas war, which are playing out across a number of different dimensions. There's, as you said, the military dimension, where we have you know, the battlefield of the 20-country coalition facing up against the Houthis. There's now a kind of geopolitical dimension that we see playing out you know, at the UN or through the fact that uh, you know, different flagged vessels are being able to move through the sewers, whether it's, you know, the Chinese or Russian flagged vessels being able to move through versus, you know, the treatment of the European vessels. But I think most most significantly, um, there's really a commercial dimension. And we're seeing, you know, what is quite a significant global impact on trade as a result of the shutdown of the Suez Canal. And it's certainly been keeping us very busy. I'm sure. But are those Chinese and Russian flagged and Chinese and Russian owned ships still entirely confident about using the Suez and the route past Yemen? Because it's not like the Houthis have been altogether discriminating in terms of who they've been blazing away at. Sure. I mean, what what we're seeing and, you know, to get a sense of the scale of the impact on commercial shipping, um, the Asia-Europe um, lane, which is, you know, the lane p- uh, predominantly from China and Southeast Asia, where vessels move through the Suez Canal, um, about 80 percent of the vessels uh, that would normally go through the Suez Canal have been diverting via the Cape of Good Hope. And that's meant around 350 vessels up till today uh, that have diverted. But we do see um, the largest Chinese shipping line, uh, Costco Shipping, generally routing their vessels uh, through the Suez Canal. We have also seen uh, a number of vessels from CMA CGM, uh, the French shipping line, and they've actually been working quite closely with the French Navy. Uh, Their strategy has been to uh, basically pull the ships up to uh, just before uh, the entrance to the Strait and, uh, and to the Red Sea. And, uh, you know, really understand whether they can be accompanied by uh, the Navy and if so, um, proceed. But that still means that a number of their vessels have gone around the Cape of Good Hope. But I, I would say that um, broadly, it's uh, it's having an impact on around 80 percent of the vessels that would normally transit through the sewers. How big an adjustment or I guess how difficult an adjustment is it for shipping companies, though, when they have to reroute their ships that far? Because the shipping companies must surely price in the possibility that events in the Middle East are, are going to take a downward turn. 
So they wouldn't ordinarily do that. And of course, there's an impact in terms of the you know, amount of fuel that they consume when they move around, uh, you know, when they go around the Cape. Um, ordinarily, they would pass through, you know, quite happily through the sewers. And I mean, you know, we can, I, I remember being on your program, uh, you know, dur- during COVID talking about the blockage of the Suez Canal uh, and the evergreen vessel that was was stuck there, you know, for a number of weeks. But um, that, um, that incident really is quite an anomaly in the, you know, general story of commercial shipping through the sewers. So it isn't something that they really price in, uh, you know, to the risk or, or, or price into the um, pricing that they pass on to their customers. Ultimately, container shipping prices are really driven by supply and demand. Um, what an event like this does do is it increases the amount of effective capacity that the shipping lines need to have in order to offer the same services. So because going around Africa takes, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 days longer, that means that they need more vessels operating, you know, over the course of a year to offer the same regularity of service. And uh, in essence, that takes out effective capacity. And with demand the same, that will then tend to push up the price of shipping. Well, on that thought then, I mean, how long is it until we start to see those increased costs reflected in the prices we're paying for whatever it is? Or are we seeing that already? So I don't think we're seeing that yet, um, but we certainly are seeing significant increases in shipping costs. Um, So most notably on the Asia-Europe lane, which is the uh, predominantly impacted trade lane, you know, prices are up anywhere from three to four times uh, during January. And they, uh, you know, have been continuing to increase through the end of January. They've now started to somewhat stabilize. Um, But what we did learn in COVID is that shipping prices are quite inelastic because they make up a relatively small part of the end consumer goods price. Um, That said, when you have sustained increases, those do get passed on to consumers. And I would expect that, you know, in uh, the current price setting of companies over the course of Q1, you'll start to see adjustments in pricing and that start to feed through to, you know, customers in Q2 and beyond. And the real question for, you know, ultimately from an inflation perspective will be uh, as to whether these, you know, increases are sustained. The other place where, you know, we are, there is some concern around uh, price inflation is um, as it relates to aviation fuel. Uh, The Suez Canal is a very significant route for um, aviation fuel, uh, you know, coming um, into Europe in particular. And, uh, you know, one of the concerns as the amount of passenger traffic picks up, um, as things get warmer and people start to, you know, fly into Eastern and beyond, as to whether there's going to be a shortage of aviation fuel and that will have an impact on inflation. Well, just finally then, how does the decision get made as to when it is safe to use Suez again? What kind of downturn in Houthi activity will shipping companies be needing to see before they're confident to send their ships back that way? Sure. Look, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's a different calculation for different shipping lines. As I've said, uh, the you know, there are two shipping lines that are, regularly actually transiting through sewers. I, I think, uh, you know, it, it, I guess, remains to be seen whether the level of um, activity, both sort of drone, missile and boarding attempts um, subsides over the coming days. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, we did see, for example, Musk announced that they were going to restart, um, you know, voyages through the sewers. And then there was another incident and then they paused again. So I would say it's um, somewhat dynamic. And, um, 
you know, w- what I would say is I do see some stability after Chinese New Year. Uh, factories shut down, uh, you know, in China um, for a number of weeks during February, and then factory production starts up again, um, you know, beginning of March. And um, if vessels are rerouting around the Cape of Good Hope, to, to some extent that starts to get factored into all of the planning by end customers. And so to the extent that vessels, you know, are just uh, vessels and schedules are basically being recalculated based on a 10 to 14 day longer lead time, you know, we can expect a little bit more stability to the extent that at least people know what they're getting, uh, you know, when they organize a shipment out of Asia. Richard Fatal at Zencargo, thanks for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Emma Searle with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. Pakistan's Prime Minister will hold an emergency security meeting today with intelligence chiefs to discuss the unprecedented attacks by both Pakistan and Iran on either side of their border this week. Islamabad launched airstrikes against alleged militants inside Iran on Thursday, killing at least nine people as it retaliated for a similar attack days earlier by Tehran. NATO will mobilize around 90,000 troops next week for its largest military exercise since the Cold War. The steadfast defender drills, which run until May, will rehearse how American troops could reinforce European allies on the alliance's eastern flank. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has signed a devolution agreement giving the predominantly Inuit government of Nunavut control over resource-rich Arctic lands. The historic deal marks the largest land transfer in Canada's history and follows decades of negotiations between Nunavut and the federal government. And Japan's space agency will attempt a soft landing on the moon today. Dubbed the Moon Sniper, the Japanese probe is attempting to land within 100 metres of its target. If successful, Japan will become the fifth country to make a lunar landing without crippling its equipment, following India's successful attempt in August. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Emma. And we head now to the snowy mountains of Davos, where the World Economic Forum annual meeting has been occurring over the past four days. Monocle's Christy O'Grady caught up with Ian Brzezinski, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and former US Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence for Europe and NATO policy. Christy began by asking Ian to explain the Atlantic Council's work on the Three Seas Initiative. Sure, the Three Seas Initiative is an effort by now 13 countries, democracies, EU member states situated between the Baltic, Black and Adriatic Seas to accelerate the development of cross-border energy, transport and digital infrastructure in the region. It's all about using the power of infrastructure development to stimulate economic growth, to strengthen economic resilience, even to enhance military security. It's driven by the vision to complete a Europe that is whole, undivided, free and secure. Obviously there are many challenges in the area at this moment, Ukraine being one of the biggest. I heard you, before we started taping, say something like, we need to be more practical in Ukraine, and Ukraine needs to be more practical. What do you mean by that? Well, that was, that was my, my colleague. We were talking about the relationship between the three Cs, in which Ukraine is a partner membership, and some of us are advocating for Ukraine to become a full member of the three Cs initiative. That would be symbolic. It would signal this region's determination to include Ukraine into into a wider Europe. But membership will be only symbolic if it's not backed up by something practical and tangible. And that's the need to identify cross-border infrastructure projects that will further embed Ukraine, deepen Ukraine's ties to the wider European market space. So here we're thinking about possible 
energy links, possible new highways, possible upgrades or new railroads, digital links and, and such. Identifying projects like that would operationalize Ukraine's relationship with the three C's, would make it tangible, and would ultimately bring Ukraine even closer, embed Ukraine even deeper into the wider European space. And that actually brings me nicely onto my next question, which is everyone kind of gets stuck in the weeds with the big Ukraine topic, the Russia-China issue, let's call it. But looking at your agenda, there is such a broad spectrum of topics and conversations that you're having, which I assume will give security to the region. What kind of conversations are you trying to have this year? What are, what are the big agendas that you're hoping to achieve? Well, when you, when you think about Euro-Atlantic security, the, the immediate and most urgent challenge is to help Ukraine win this war, defeat this invasion by Russia, this unjustified and brutal invasion by Russia, to help Ukraine win it on its terms and to do it quickly. Then to ensure that you create the infrastructural, the institutional framework that will ensure that Ukraine is never attacked again. And from where you're stood, from the things you've heard, how can we do that in real terms? Well, I, I think the transatlantic community, the Western community of democracy, the global community of democracies have to, have to demonstrate greater political will in their support to Ukraine. And toward that end, I think there are five things that the transatlantic community needs to do. First, it needs to adopt Ukraine's war objectives, which is total territorial reconstitution. That has to be un unambiguous. That's an important signal itself, not just to the Ukrainians, but to Putin and his cohorts in, in Moscow. Second, we have to provide Ukraine the equipment it needs, the long-range strike, the aircraft, the tanks, all the equipment it needs to marshal a counteroffensive that'll push Russia out of its territory. And that includes also lifting the restrictions that the West's place on the equipment is given to Ukraine. For example, Ukraine can't use its military equipment from the West against legitimate military targets in Russia. That has to end. Third, the West has to really upgrade, increase its economic sanctions on Russia. It's got to sledgehammer Russia with economic sanctions. So the entire country feels, quote unquote, the pain. So we more effectively end Russia's ability to finance its war against Ukraine. Fourth, there's got to be a more concerted effort to engage the Russian people, as we did during the Cold War, to communicate them the horrors that Putin's committing in Ukraine. And then fifth, I strongly believe that Ukraine needs to be put on a clear path to NATO membership, including during the war. It has to be not only part of the strategy to secure whatever stability or peace that emerges after the war, it has to be part of the win strategy. So I think that fifth element basically involves putting Ukraine on a path to NATO membership at the upcoming Washington summit that NATO will have in July. Mm -hmm. And finally, what can we be optimistic about within the region this year? Oh my goodness, I think one thing optimistic is, is the courage of the Ukrainian people. It's been inspirational. They are doing so much, sacrificing so much, not only just for their own sovereignty, but for the international principles of, of, of sovereignty and democracy that we all value and have benefited from. They are literally the front line for defense of the rules-based international order. So if there's something to look at and be inspired by in 2024, it's the courage of the Ukrainian people. That was Ian Brzezinski, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council, speaking to Monocle's Christy O'Grady at Davos. <laughs> You are back with the briefing on Monocle Radio and to Paris now, where Men's Fashion Week is circa halfway through and from where I am joined by Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. Um, Natalie, it's, you've had three or four days of this by now. What have stood out to you as the highlights? 
Hi, Andrew. There have been quite a lot of highlights since I came here on Tuesday, starting, I think, with the Louis Vuitton show, uh, which was the second big show in Paris by Pharrell Williams. And what really stood out is that Paris is really dominated by these huge brands owned by LVMH and Caring, and there's something more than fashion going on here. They're trying to put on these huge spectacles that involve music and design and, and, and entertainment. And of course, the audience that is present is very important, but they are also creating these experiences for millions of people to watch at home. I mean, installing someone like Farrell as creative director obviously is, is, is asking for some sort of synthesis of fashion and music. Are we getting a sense of where he is taking Louis Vuitton? Yes, I think what he really wants to create is at this huge workshop where, of course, he is infiltrating his own creative ideas, but then bringing in a lot of different collaborators. For example, this uh, show uh, was all about the American Western wardrobe, and he brought in a lot of Native American um, artists, creatives to work on embroidery, to work on the soundtrack with him. Um, other times he's bringing in other musicians to create uh, to create other music that goes on the show, uh, craftsmen but to create one of pieces. So he's really thinking big and trying to involve as many people as possible. Well, let's talk about some of the more modest and more intimate shows, which by the sound of it is pretty much all of them. Um, what has really struck you there? We, we have designers inviting people into their own homes. Exactly. So that's what's really interesting about Paris. Sometimes you do get these huge uh, spectacles, but at the same time, there's also designers that do things a lot more intimately. And it's interesting to have both experiences. And right after the Louis Vuitton show, um, Rick Owens, who's an L.A.-based designer, he invited um, uh, his guests to his own apartment and, and showed something a lot more intimate. And another favorite a designer of mine, Christophe Lemaire, brought us into his office so it was maybe 50 60 people sat on two rows around the office and a lot of the models were also his friends it was people of all ages walking around and and showing the clothes which were a lot more classic and a lot of, a lot more about just his signature silhouettes perfected season after season. And we've talked a bit about those big mainstream establishment brands that we always talk about when we talk about Paris Men's Fashion Week, but is it also an arena in which newer and up-and-coming brands can make a name for themselves? Absolutely, and I think a lot of younger brands are now braving Paris, even though it is dominated by the bigger names and trying to make a name for themselves here. There's a lot of London-based designers who have been coming, like Grace Wales Bonner and Martine Rose. Martine um, has already had a lot of um, influence in Paris as a consultant for Balenciaga, but now she wants to strike out on her own, and she staged a show where it was... Her friends, grandparents, uh, her children, all together uh, wearing her clothes, dancing down the runway was really heartwarming. Um, and there's also a designer from L.A., Mike Amiri, who, again, using his Hollywood uh, influences, he wants to stand out and, and, and has been really catching quite a lot of attention the last two seasons. So you really do get quite an interesting mix of characters uh, during the week. 
Uh, and just finally and briefly, what are you most looking forward to in terms of what is still to come? So I am actually now on my way to the military school in the 7th district here in Paris to watch the Dior men's show, which is always a highlight. It's by designer Kim Jones, who was first at Louis Vuitton, at Fendi, now making his mark at Dior. So big, this one is going to be a big spectacle, usually thousands of people waiting outside for K-pop stars to make their appearance. But it's also... He's also some really great fashion. And, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he's going to show us next. Natalie Theodosi, Monocle Fashion Editor in Paris. Thank you for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. This is The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller, and finally on today's show, it is time for our weekly reflection on what the last seven days have contributed to the sum of human knowledge. We learned this week that the United States has never been a racist country. (coughs) To be clear, we did not learn that the United States has never been a racist country, give or take slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, lynchings, the Indian Removal Act, the internment of Japanese Americans, the Ku Klux Klan. Righto, you've got the idea we don't have all day. We learned that it has just never been racist. And we learned this from Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina and US ambassador to the UN, now one of the Republican candidates trying to lose the contest for their party's nomination for the presidency to a mentally ill con man by the smallest possible margin. No, we're we're not a racist country, Brian. We've never been a racist country. Speaking of whom, we learned that former President Donald Trump was determined to be unhelpful to Haley's breezy thesis, as we learned that joining the long list of tawdry manoeuvres he is not above is sneeringly referring to Haley in social media posts by her more obviously foreign-sounding first name, Nimarata, and amplifying a rumour that Haley is ineligible for the presidency due to her immigrant parents not being US citizens at the time of her birth. To be clear, they were, and she is. We also learned from said posts that Trump cannot spell Nimarata, which, to be honest, isn't that complicated, though as is so very often the case, it is difficult to tell whether Trump is being deliberately malicious or just a massive idiot or both. Ten more months of this, folks. Anyway. No money, baby. Sticking with the subject of people who leveraged fame initially acquired in showbiz circles to reach high office in the United States, we learned that former governor of California and in fairness not the worst mediocre Austrian artist who has ever run a government, Arnold Schwarzenegger, had been running for watch trafficking? Was that really literally a clip of a watch ticking? Is that what that was? We learned that Schwarzenegger had been detained on arrival in Munich, again, not the first mediocre Austrian artist, etc., when customs officials found in his luggage a posh timepiece. Righto, we learned that Schwarzenegger had brought this high-end wristwear to Germany with a view to auctioning it at some charity wingding. 
but had neglected to fill in the pertinent forms or something, and how very unlike German officialdom to be humorless sticklers for bureaucratic propriety. Can I get some general muttered agreement? Yeah. We learn further, and those of our listeners who may have been tempted by the thought of a new career as watch runners should pay careful attention, that if one gets rumbled attempting to smuggle contraband past customs in Germany, it is no small change. We learn that Schwarzenegger had been stung for a total of 35 grand, and that under German law, half of that has to be paid in cash, which necessitated a trip to the bank under police escort. Nevertheless, we're glad Schwarzenegger got to keep the watch and was able to proceed with the fundraiser. Such a worthy initiative surely deserves a big hand. Stop it. And we learned that the Pope is unkeen on online pornography. Bear with us. We grant that it would probably have seemed like bigger news if the Pope had announced that he was in fact all for online pornography and had enjoined his congregation to have at it, fill your boots, knock yourselves out, etc. But we confess to being mildly entranced by the reason that His Holiness felt it necessary to make his objections clear. Which was, we learn, the resurfacing of a book written some while back by Argentinian prelate Victor Manuel Fernandez, a friend as well as compatriot of the pontiff, and recently appointed head of the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, which does sound fearfully important. Can I get a portentous thunderclap? We learned that Cardinal Fernandez had, as a younger priest, published a book entitled Mystical Passion, Spirituality and Sensuality, and that this in itself was a follow-up to an earlier Fernandez treatise entitled Heal Me With Your Mouth, The Art of Kissing. We further learned that chapter headings in Mystical Passion included the following, as will be intoned by Monocle's Stop It or You'll Go Blind desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. The fire of divine love, a well of sublime passion, a crazy love story. My beautiful one, come. We learned that all of the above had placed Pope Francis in an awkward spot, several of his colleagues apparently unconvinced that all this amounted to an entirely appropriate literary CV for a senior cleric, and that the attendant embarrassment was what had prompted His Holiness to issue his anti-pornography harumph. We have not as yet learned whether or not this will prove sufficient to placate critics of Fernandez and thereby forestall the necessity of the Pope. And now that we approach the punchline, we are starting to wonder if the build-up was all worth attending towards. Not really, to be honest, but you be the judge. And thereby forestall the necessity of the Pope having to fire the cannon. And that is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Emma Searle, our researcher was Neoma Akwe, and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard, with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. The Briefing returns on Monday. At the same time, I'm Andrew Muller. I'm back with The Daily at 1800 London. For now, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.